All right, here it is, at last. Chapter 2 of the Skyrim Audio Adventure. Chapter 2. Blood in the Water. Fandel sat on the chopping stump at the back of the Riverwood Lumber Mill. He could hear the raucous sounds of men and mirth emanating from the sleeping giant across town. He gazed up at the countless stars and distant auroras that whipped and flowed and danced silently across the sky like so many ribbons of light. He savored such sights. The boss Murr was glad that he'd left his home in Valenwood, otherwise he'd have never been privy to this view. He rubbed a thumb across one of his calloused palms. It was a hard life, though. Work at this mill was fair, but most of the local Nords had a bit of a distaste for elves like him. They didn't understand that he was a Bosmer of Valenwood, not an Altmer of the Somerset Isles. His people were not responsible for the Thalmor's war. In fact, in lieu of the racial cleansings, he might have more to fear of the Thalmor than the Nords. Yet, it is not like a Nord, especially one who allies themselves with the Stormcloaks to see the world in anything but black and white. He sighed. You know, it's a lively night at the inn. It would be a shame for you to miss it, came a voice from behind him. He turned just as Camilla stepped out of the shadows and stood, her arms folded under her breast, leaning against the side of the mill. At this sight, the wood elf's dark eyes grew wide. The raven-haired imperial maiden was sister to Lucan, owner of a local general store called the Riverwood Trader. The two of them had gravitated towards each other since he first arrived in Riverwood. In truth, she was among the biggest reasons he'd stopped his wandering and decided to settle down here. In her he had found something he had failed to find elsewhere in Skyrim. A genuine friendship. Now as he looked at her in the night glow, a mischievous glint in her eyes, her delicate fingers drumming lightly on her upper arm, her soft lips a deep red, her hair reflecting the moonlight giving her a soft halo. He felt something a bit more. He smiled. No, I can't imagine they'd want me there. Camilla's brow furrowed. Oh, come now. That's far from true. You've been here long enough. These people accept you. Do they, Camilla? Do they really? Yes, she said with a huff. And if they don't, they'll have to answer to me. Fandle chuckled at this. <laughs> a fate to be feared. Definitely. Now come on, you're missing it. Orgnar has started drinking, so if you don't hurry, the mead will run dry. Orgnar? Divines keep us if he breaks out the blood wine. Camilla grinned widely at this. See, you're needed in there. Come, Sven is playing up a storm. The elf's smile faltered. I think I'll stay here and keep the river company. What do you have against Sven? He's a great bard. He's a decent bard. He knows almost nothing of the world, and yet he thinks he can sing about it? That's hardly fair. You've traveled so far. Of course he seems naive to you. I know, I know, Fandle sighed. I just don't see why you spend so much time with him. He's a friend, like you. Why shouldn't I spend time with him? At this, Fandle turned away and sighed. I've actually been meaning to talk to you about that. Or, rather, something close to that. Camilla stepped closer, her voice worried. What is it, Fandel? Do you know 
why I settled here in Riverwood? Well, in your words, because there's beauty here unmatched in all of Skyrim. Vandal turned to her. Yes, but... You see, I... didn't mean... What was that? Camilla, I... She placed her fingers on his lips and stared into the darkness of the river, searching. Listen, she whispered. And he did. There was a faint splashing coming from the water's edge. Low, barely audible above the rushing of the river, like something was moving around on the bank. He stood up and moved to look, Camilla at his back. In the moon's pale glow, he could see something emerging from the current. Is that a mud crab? Camilla wondered aloud. It's very big. Just then, with a guttural moan, a black, shaggy something flung itself onto the bank. Camilla screamed and jumped back, tripping over the stump. What in the world? exclaimed Feindel as the beast writhed, half-submerged on the shore. It was then that he heard some raspy breaths that sounded almost like a voice. <sighs> he leaned closer. Help! Please! I need help! Feindel leapt down the short incline to the embankment as the disheveled man clawed at the dirt and weeds. Give me your arm, he said as he reached out. With what seemed like a great deal of effort, the man flung his right arm into Feindel's grasp, but did not return the grip. It took a moment for the elf to register the arrow that was run through his forearm, and the second one buried high in his back. By the eight, he exclaimed, turning to Camilla as she sheepishly brushed herself off. He's wounded. Camilla, get Delphine. Camilla nodded and ran off to the sleeping giant inn. Feindel hoisted the shaggy man up onto his shoulders, and they nearly fell backwards into the river. He was heavy, quite thin, but his shaggy clothes were waterlogged, and this made lifting him up onto the landing a precarious venture. What's your name? The elf asked as he successfully placed the man on the grass and climbed up after him. But it seemed the man had fallen unconscious, or at least was past the point of speaking. Feindel grabbed him by the wrists and unceremoniously Feindel grabbed him by his wrists and unceremoniously dragged him like a sack over to the ramp of the mill. The sound of hollow footfalls on the small bridge back to town alerted him to the presence of Delphine. The tall, stern innkeeper was carrying a freshly lit torch as she came. Hod and Alvor were at her heels, a long wooden stretcher between them. Put him down in here, said Delphine as she opened the door to one of the inn's small side rooms. The sight of the drenched, bleeding man had brought the festivities of the sleeping giant to a screeching halt. Laborers and travelers alike now looked on soberly as Hod and Alvor carried the dark, punctured individual into the room and lay the wooden stretcher down on the bed. He lay on his stomach, unmoving, and seemingly unknowing, as Delphine slid a pillow under his face, making sure to turn his head and clear his airways. She examined his stuck forearm. This would be relatively simple. Hod, could you go get a saw? Sure thing. Be right back, said the square-jawed Nord as he turned and pushed his way through the onlookers and out the door. Alvor, go see if you can get Orgnar to sober up. I might need him to cook or mix a salve. Oh, and your wife's dealt with the wounded before, right? The broad Nord grinned a little. Married to me, of course she has. Great. Send her in, will you? I need an extra pair of hands and, well, no offense. The bearded man just shook his head. Don't worry, Delphine. 
This is no place for a smithy. Thanks, Alvor, she said. As Alvor departed, Delphine drew a dagger from her belt and began to cut the furs off the inert man's back. She worked her way down to the arrow, then started at the bottom and began working her way up towards the arrow. It was about this time that Alvor's wife, Sigrid, entered the room. Thanks for coming, said Delphine as Sigrid bent down next to her. No problem. I've seen much worse, honestly. Has he said anything? No, he's out cold, it looks like, said Delphine as she finished cutting through the furs and pulled them apart to reveal the man's lean back and the arrow sitting deep to the left of his spine. Looks like the shoulder blade took all the punishment. It's probably shattered. Good thing, too. Any deeper and it would have pierced his heart. Looks like there's blood coming from the shoulder, said Sigrid, reaching to pull the furs back even more. He must have yanked this one out. Look at the tearing. How do you think he ended up in the river? I'd say we can ask him in a moment. Hod's back. Here's that saw you wanted. Thanks, Hod, said Delphine as she took it from him. Sigrid, grab a towel and wrap it around the one in the arm. We don't want to get sawdust in the wound. Gripping the arrow by its fletching, she began to saw while Sigrid stabilized the base and arm. When the offending arrow started vibrating between his bones, a low, grunting moan began to emit from the otherwise sedentary form of the man on the stretcher. Once Delphine cut through the arrow's shaft, she handed the saw back to Hod. Could you go grab another dagger? Or a clean knife? Sure. Just then, Orgnar stuck his head in the door. You wanted to see me? He slurred. Yes, I did, she said matter-of-factly as she blew the dust off the shaft, lifted the arm, grabbed the arrow by its tip, and swiftly whipped it out. The lean, shaggy man's head shot up with a yell. He gasped and sputtered, adjusting to his abrupt call to consciousness. Who's that? said Orgnar in a tone that betrayed his disinterest. That's our guest, said Delphine. Go cook him something. Fine, he grunted as he left. Delphine looked back at the blinking vagabond. Hello, stranger. But where am I? He gasped. Riverwood. Good. And with that, his head fell back onto the pillow, and his eyes closed as if nothing had ever happened. Sigrid caught Delphine's eye and shrugged. Hod appeared in the doorway and tossed a short kitchen knife to Delphine, who thanked him and handed it to Sigrid. This next part's going to hurt even more, so you might want to bite down on this said Sigrid as she offered the slightly bloody towel to the patient who was apparently lucid enough to accept it into his mouth. Here, slide the knife in along the shaft on this side, instructed Delphine. As Sigrid did, a sharp inhale forced her to pull back. I know it hurts, but you need to hold still or we'll end up cutting you up even more, explained Sigrid. Try holding your breath. It won't take too long. The bleeding man fell still and the women went back to work. They slid the knife and dagger in alongside the arrow, pushing the twitching flesh aside as they looked for the barbs and tip. Red ooze bubbled up from the wound, and Delphine had to dab it away. I think I found the barb, said Sigrid. Sure it's not bone? Yeah, look. Okay, that means the other one should be right. Here, got it. I'll take your knife, you grab the arrow. Now. Their hands quickly exchanged places, Delphine holding both the knife and dagger, Sigrid grabbing the arrow shaft and bracing against the back. Okay, are you ready? Yep. Is he ready? Sigrid looked down to see the man staring daggers at the wall, tears flowing freely and silently from his bloodshot eyes. Yeah, he's ready. Okay, digging in and... You're free. Pull it out. Sigrid nodded, and with an almost anticlimactic slipping sound, the arrow was pulled out 
and Delphine let the wound close. The man spit out the towel and gulped in air with loud, ragged heaves. No bone chips, said Sigrid. Okay, said Delphine, rubbing her bloody hands together. That means we're done with the easy part. She caught the man's wide-eyed stare. I mean, easy for me, Skeever Brain. I'm no mage. She closed her eyes in concentration as a warm golden glow began to emit from her hands, as if she held daylight itself. She opened her eyes and softly pressed her hands into his back. The, the glow spread through his flesh, and through the skin one could almost see the many shards of bone shifting back into place as the wound slowly began to heal. Do you have a name? The man shook his head. Not really. Back in Helgen, they just call me Stranger. I don't really have anything proper. You're from Helgen? Near Helgen. My camp is... was... outside town. Huh. I have a nephew stationed there. Ever met Hadvar? I might have, but if he was part of the garrison, I'm, I, I wouldn't have known it was him. I try to avoid the soldiers. Why? Well, they... They think I'm a Stormcloak spy. And are you a Stormcloak spy? The hunter had to chuckle a bit at this, but grimaced at the pain it brought. He fixed the auburn-haired Nord woman with a lopsided grin. No. Not that it matters, but I'm mostly Imperial. You're a bit grizzled for an Imperial. And you're a bit gorgeous for a Nord. Sigrid had to smile a little, too. I'm also very spoken for, so don't go getting any ideas. Delphine wiped the sweat from her brow as the hole in the hunter's back closed and began to skin over. She conjured up another healing spell and began working on the wound in his shoulder. Sigrid continued, How did you wind up in the river? The hunter closed his eyes, remembering. I was attacked by bandits near my camp. They, dis they destroyed it and chased me north. I got away, but I couldn't walk anymore, so I jumped in the river. What are bandits doing so close to the garrison? I don't know. They, they mentioned a chief, so there must be some kind of group hiding out somewhere. We should probably alert Helgen, then. Have them send some patrols out. I'll talk to Alvor about it when we're done here said Delphine as she moved down to the hole in the hunter's arm. Were you hurt anywhere else? Yes, actually, said the hunter. I took an arrow to my flank. Your what? My rear. Delphine raised an eyebrow at this and glanced at Sigrid. Close the door. Despite his thoroughly pickled state, the stew that Orgnar had made was absolutely delicious. It filled the hunter with a deep warmth, the likes of which he had not known in months. Or perhaps in his state, even gnawing on a well-seasoned boot would have had the same effect. Regardless, the hunter lapped up the stew in a matter of minutes, and now found himself craning his neck trying to get a good look at his new scars. I wouldn't expect those to fade anytime soon. I'm no expert in the restoration school, after all, said Delphine as she leaned against the wall watching the hunter contort himself. 
Her tone was not apologetic, but the hunter still shook his head as if to shake away any doubt. I am in your debt, he said softly. But I fear I have nothing to pay with. It's nothing. If you must pay your debt to someone, pay it to Riverwood. Stick around. Do some work. We could always use an extra set of hands. Ah, uh, perhaps. Actually, I, I know of a way that I might pay you. But I need to get back to where this all happened first. To where the bandits got you? Yes. But I can't go there myself, though. The woods might take me in my current state. You want someone to go with you? Yes. Someone who knows the wilds. Well, you'll want Feindol or Bracknell. But I doubt they'd be willing. Feindol is pretty tied up at the mill, and Bracknell's a bit old. I think he likes to stick to his hunting grounds. Is he a hunter? Yeah. Lives in a tree outside town. In a tree, you say? Hunter didn't sleep as well as he was hoping. The harsh snapping of white fangs in the darkness had his spine twisting in knots all night long. The one night he had a proper bed to sleep in, and he couldn't even enjoy it. It was probably this frustration that led him to throw stones at the door of the small treehouse the next morning. As the eighth stones clattered off the wood, the door swung open to reveal a large, elderly Nord with a full beard and a foul expression. For the love of Talos, what do you want? The old man wore a simple tunic with rugged pants. I take it you're Bracknell. What's it to you, stranger? I lost my gear in the woods. I was told you might be able to escort me till I get it back. Who told you something stupid like that? Delphine. From, from the Sleeping Giant. Delphine. Oh, you're that boy with the bloody arse from last night. Yeah, yeah, that's me. I see. The large man stretched as a brisk morning breeze blew by. <sighs> you owe Delphine quite a debt. She doesn't seem to think so. She says I should pay it to Riverwood. Of course she did. Well, that's going to be a lot of hard work for you. I know that, but I don't know what I can do without my bow. Bandit sacked my camp, so I've... Pretty much got nothing, you see. You could always buy a new bow. No money. Just work at Girder's Mill and buy a new one. Goodbye. Please, it's... It's... My bow. I'm a hunter. I need my bow. If you think that, then you're not much of a hunter. There might be something else. A, a weapon. We can, we can pawn it. I'll split it with you. I have no need of it. Sir, I was hunted yesterday. At this, the old Nord seemed to stiffen. If you help me, I'll tell you all about how I survived. Bracknell eyed him and drummed his fingers on the wooden railing. Well, I'm not going anywhere this early. Why don't you come on up and have some breakfast? Relieved, the hunter looked around for some way to get up the tree. There was a large rock to his left. If he was determined, he could take a running jump and try to grab onto the lip of the treehouse's balcony. But since the tree was on a slope, if he missed, the fall distance would be six times that of the jump. Just as he was considering the best angle of approach, 
He was struck about the top of the head by the first wooden step of a rope ladder. Ha! That's for waking me up! Bracknell called, his grin revealing several crooked teeth, before with a roll of his shoulders, he disappeared back into the treehouse. When the hunter reached the balcony and looked around, he was nearly knocked right back down by the view. They were about a quarter mile from Riverwood, right at the junction where the land slopes away, where the river turns to rapids and the rocks turn to cliffs. It had been so long since he'd seen Whiterun hold, but now it was all laid out before him like a map, backlit by the distant snowy peaks of the Pale. The city was sitting sleepy in the early morning gloom, save for the tallest spires of Dragon's Reach Castle, those just high enough to catch the first light of the southeast sun and shine like earthbound stars. The morning frost rendering them resplendent as the sharp shafts of light cut through the morning mist. Such warm lights sitting in brilliant contrast to the cold air nipping at the hunter's nose. A soft plume of fog escaped his lips as he gave a deep sigh. What's keeping you, boy? You're letting in the cold. A needled branch brushed the hunter's head as he stepped inside and closed the door. The treehouse was remarkably cozy. A well-constructed bed lay at the far end, under a large shelf with a variety of chests and barrels and sacks. The lichen-encrusted trunk of the tree came up through the house's left side, next to a bookshelf with a water keg and several more chests. On the right side, there was an end table with a peculiar setup of glass files and tubes, a built-up stone pit with a cast-iron pot suspended over it, and a game rack with a dead rabbit and pheasant hanging from it. There was even a glass window set in the wall, so they could look out at a slightly blurry picture of Whiterun. The hunter had to wonder how long the man had been living up here. The old man rummaged in the back for a moment before producing a log of firewood and some flint. He knelt by the stone pit and began shaving thin strips of wood into it with a knife. The hunter was taken aback. You aren't going to light a fire in here, are you? Bracknell nodded and tapped the wooden wall. Fireproof wood. Made it myself. How? The old man nodded at the curious setup on the end table. With an infusion of frost salts, thistle, and spriggan sap. You're an alchemist. Alchemist, hunter, wooer of many women. Ha! I'm whatever I need to be to live on these slopes. Here, take the chair. I'll sit on the bed. Now that he wasn't shouting, the old man's voice took on a low, groaning quality, like a tree being bent by the wind. The hunter accepted the chair. I imagine you get a lot of plains moose coming up through here. Yes. Bracknell nodded as he began to make sparks with a flint. But every now and then, some of the Illinalta herd make their way down the valley. That's where you're from, yes? Helgen, actually, said the hunter. Just then... A distant, mournful howl came drifting through the treehouse. The two hunters froze and looked instinctively at the wall the sound had come through. The old hunter's eyes flashed at the stranger, and a smile played at his lips. You've got wolves up there, too? In response, the young man merely loosened his fur bracer and held up his scarred forearm. Ah, yes. Bracknell nodded and lifted up his pant leg to show several similar old puncture wounds. Cunning beasts, those. Indeed. Do you think it's the same pack? The old man inhaled deeply and lightly blew on the slowly developing fire. No. My pack tends to stay around Bleak Falls Mountain. 
How about some wildflower tea? That sounds great. Lovely. As he positioned a kettle over the now steadily smoking pile of kindle, and stood by, firewood in hand. Have you always lived here? No, but that's my business, isn't it? Yes, I suppose it is. As the mid-morning light began to poke through the pine needles, the hunter made a clumsy descent down the swinging ladder. When he stumbled at last onto solid ground, legs wobbling like a calf, Bracknell made his smooth way down, almost sliding the last ten feet. When thick leather boots clopped onto hard earth and the elder hunter adjusted his bow and quiver, they were off, down the rocks, back to the main road. The hunter couldn't help but eye the way Bracknell had fastened his quiver. Rather than strap it tight to the back so that one could grab the arrows by reaching over their shoulder, he had slung it low so it sat sideways on his hips, just above his posterior. As the pair crossed the bridge back, as the pair crossed the bridge back into Riverwood, the hunter decided to ask, "Say, Bracknell, why do you hang your quiver so low? Doesn't it make you wider when you're hunting?" In response, the Nord lifted his draw hand out in front of him and brought it up above his head, but it wasn't long before he visibly stiffened up. He let it relax and rest near his hip. Then, with a comparatively small motion, he reached a few inches behind his hip and tapped the fletchings of his arrows. My shoulders aren't what they used to be. The hunter nodded at this, then squinted as something else occurred to him. How do you keep the arrows from falling out at that angle? Simple. I pay attention. Riverwood was well awake by now. Fandle was measuring logs while Hod was greasing the mill wheel and inspecting the gears. Alvor was toiling over some thick leather straps and fittings. He looked up as the hunter passed. Ah, stranger, good to see you up and about so soon. I'll be sure to let Sigrid know you're doing well. The hunter opened his mouth to reply, but faltered. Bracknell glanced at the young man as the silence began to stretch to troubling length. At last the hunter managed to push out. Uh, Thank you. What are you making there? Oh, this? It's actually a little secret. My daughter Dorothy wants to be a blacksmith, but her mother doesn't approve. The broad man held up the thick leather. This will be her apron one day, once she grows into it. How long will she have to wait? (laughs) Too long, I'm sure, smiled the smithy, glancing at the south road. Are you leaving us? No, I... I'll be back. Alvar smiled, seeming to take pity on the faltering Imperial. Then we'll see you then, friend. Best of luck out there. With a stiff jaw, the hunter nodded and turned back to the road. As the two hunters passed under the south gate, Bracknell gave the stranger a questioning look. You must not get a lot of good mornings over in Helgen. Well, first of all, I know everyone in Helgen, he said simply. It seems everyone here already knows me. Even you. Well, that's to be expected after the entrance you made. Anonymity isn't really an option anymore. I suppose it was the most impressive entrance anyone can make when they're asleep. That may very well be, chuckled Bracknell. So is that why you froze up? No, actually, I... 
I just remembered I made a pass at his wife last night. A high, wheezing laugh erupted from Bracknell at this. My goodness, you lecher, he cried. I was high on pain. I wasn't myself. <laughs> well, Secret's used to that kind of thing. I doubt she took it seriously. Oh, she definitely didn't. Still, you might want to work on those uh, social skills, says the man who lives up in a tree. Point taken, young blood. As the rushing of the river faded away, the world became dim and darkly familiar. The smells of still wet blood and musky wolf markings grew until the hunter's now closed wounds were screaming at him to flee. He tried to keep his breath steady. He was only here for two things. By the time he stepped into the clearing that was nearly his coffin, he was entirely focused on his goal. That is until Bracknell stepped in behind him and immediately swore. By the nine, he exclaimed, walking over to a faint wolf track. Claw marks dragged across a patch of moss. What monster left this? The hunter only held up his mangled forearm, the scar tissue glistening in the flecks of light that filtered through the canopy. I call him Titus. Bracknell's eyes grew big as the scene began to take shape in his head. He looked at the blood, the broken, used-up trap, the scattered, discarded weapons, and then to Stranger who was bending over a simple axe that lay on the ground. For a moment, he looked as though he would pick it up. But then his eyes darkened, and he left it where it lay. By the time Bracknell spoke, Stranger had wandered over to where his bow lay and was inspecting it, running his fingers along the smooth, sweeping wings. Okay, he finally said. Why don't you tell me how this all fits together? For the next several minutes, they wandered around the scattered scene of carnage. The elder hunter listened as Stranger recounted the ambush, the chase, the trap, and the desperate, almost suicidal call for aid. You are a moron. Those were the first words out of Bracknell's mouth, once the hunter had laid out the events of the previous night. I figured you'd say that. Why didn't you shoot the archer when you ambushed them? I wanted to, but he was too close to the large one. I had no shot. And what about the wolves? Does that not seem a little crazy to you? They know me. Do your wolves not know you? They know me, Bracknell said darkly. They know I'm growing old. They know my shoulders ache in the cold. And they know I can't hear so well out of my left ear. They know this because it's all they care to know. The wolves are not simple beasts. No! They are not. And that's why they're so dangerous. The hunter couldn't but agree. Well, he said matter-of-factly, I survived, didn't I? Don't let the success of your plan delude you to your own virtue. Let's not forget how this all began. Yes, I was walking back to camp, i just killed a pheasant, and... And did you not see signs? Tracks? Broken branches? Did you not taste the air? Did you not hear their movements? Do you really think a bandit that large can move silently in these woods? Were you daydreaming? Singing? Humming? How did they know you were coming before you ever saw them? No, I was... Thinking. Thinking. I'd gotten everything I needed. 
It w- I, I wasn't hunting at the time. Hunting isn't just about fulfilling your base needs. When you're a hunter, you're always a hunter. The hunter almost wanted to slap the old man. For years he had survived in these woods, but it had not gone without incident. He knew Bracknell was speaking sense, whether he was willing to admit that or not. Bracknell seemed to take his silence for some form of submission, and relented the point. What did you want to pick up besides your bow? You said it was a weapon? Yeah, said the hunter, coming back to reality. I think it would have dropped over here. The large Nord's lifeblood had grown brown in a self-made puddle of mud. The broken arrows lay bent in all manner of crooked angles, and under a bush nearby lay a familiar steel mace. With some effort, the hunter held the weapon up to his eyes, an act that caused his own heart to skip a beat. This was no mass-produced, molded weapon. This was an exquisite example of Nordic craftsmanship. Its folded steel, fashioned into four mean, blade-like edges, their sides inlaid with fine, sweeping Nordic arches. They were all sharp to the touch, despite obvious signs of wear. The hunter thought it must be a family heirloom, passed down by proud Nordic fathers, or perhaps mentors. Did this weapon even belong to the man who had attacked him? Or had he come by it by some ill means? Or perhaps the mace had seen countless hands since those of its true owners. Whatever nobility it had was irrelevant now. He would sell it, pay this critical old man, and try to buy leathers to build a new tent. He could try to restart his camp, but where? He didn't know where the bandits were based. They hadn't been carrying enough to be wanderers, they had to have come from somewhere. Perhaps the mace hid some clue, some mark of membership, some smell he could follow, some unique material. The hunter poured over the sharp edges of the head, over the grip, the counterweight, and shaft. He found what he was looking for, and immediately wished he hadn't. Carved into one of the fastening rings on the shaft was a small message. It read, Ricard, may my steel bring you home. It could mean nothing. In fact, that was most likely the case, since he had taken it off a bandit and not a soldier. But still, he couldn't shake the feeling that he had just learned the name of the only man he had ever killed. At the sound of footsteps on his wooden porch, Alvor quickly hid the small apron he'd been working on with what struck the hunter as well-practiced efficiency. He relaxed when he saw who it was, even laughed at Bracknell's scathing review of the hunter's mental capacity. However, when the mace was brought before his eyes, he quickly deferred them to the Riverwood trader. It would be wrong for a smith to put someone else's work on display without being able to credit them, he had said. Lucan, the man who ran the Riverwood Trader, had no such reservations. He did, however, have a shrewd merchant's mind. The hunter had been well on his way to a bad deal when Bracknell stepped in to put Lucan in his place. The merchant grew timid as the elder hunter growled at him about the state of his shop and how his methods discouraged second visits. 
Lucan was proud of his success, as many Imperial merchants are. Several ornaments decorated his shop. Rare spices hung from the ceiling, and a large claw of molded gold sat on his counter. Such trophies attempted to offset the cobwebs in the corners, and the dust on the books and dark iron weapons. The mace was eventually sold for 45 gold septums, 15 of which went to Bracknell, 9 to an ill-fitting quiver and 4 iron-tipped arrows, and 14 to a large brown bear pelt, thick and warm enough to sleep in but malleable enough to be fashioned into a rudimentary pack. He had, been going, he had been going to spend the remaining gold on a short iron knife, but Bracknell quickly produced a similar blade from his belt and tossed it to the hunter, muttering he had plenty. The hunter walked out of the shop with something he had been sorely missing for the past day, a sense of security. When the hunter turned to thank Bracknell, the old man was already halfway to the bridge. He couldn't help but smile as he recognized that this wordless departure was very characteristic of the old hunter. I think he likes you. The hunter turned to see Delphine leaning against the porch beam as she watched the ragged figure shrink away in the clear midday light. That's good. He does need to get out more. The hunter was mildly perplexed. He's a hunter. We get out plenty. You get out to hunt. We need to, to survive. Delphine's emerald eyes turned to him then. And to survive, you need to know every rock and hear every sound. I swear you sound just like him. I, I have a feeling he'd disagree with you there. Surviving and living are not the same thing. Trust me. I know. I think a bit of competition would be good for him. Competition? Oh, you couldn't tell? Wow, you really are clueless. You were following us? Of course not. I heard all I needed to once you got back. She noticed the hunter's quizzical gaze. When you're a barmaid and you get used to listening to other people's conversations. I suppose. Oh, that reminds me. The hunter then rummaged in one of his pockets, producing the pouch of his remaining gold coins. I hope this covers what I owe you. Delphine seemed taken aback and shook her head. I told you, stranger. You don't owe me anything. Taking the old man out was worth far more than a few septums. But if you insist on giving me your money... You can at least come by the inn and have a drink. I think I'll take you up on that, said the hunter as a smile began to creep onto his face. Once again that night, the sleeping giant was alive with song and mirth, but the hunter did not join in. He had enjoyed the rare treat of ale earlier, and now it was lulling him to sleep, wrapped up in his bear pelt against the trunk of a massive tree near the river. The laughter from the inn and the distant rushing of the rapids to the north carried him to dreams where he floated on the breeze and rode the air currents like they were skybound streams. He crashed off the rocks, and he could feel himself as the drifting mist. He could feel the mist on his face. His face was wet and warm. His face was warm and slimy. He jolted awake to be greeted by the broad pink tongue of Stump the dog and the guffawing of his owner, Frodnar, son of Hod. They ran away cackling and barking as the hunter shot to his feet, sputtering unintelligibly. His bones popped and creaked as his sleeping form was brought to sudden motion. 
He was expecting the brisk, chilly air of the dawn, but was instead greeted by the warm, sun-kissed air of mid-morning. It wasn't until he registered the loud grinding of the lumber mill that he realized he had overslept. For what? He didn't know. Breakfast? Nah, who cares? Maybe, maybe he should take his bow out to the north slopes to make sure she's still shot straight. Maybe pick up Bracknell on the way, get the old man out and about again. While he washed his face in the river, he felt eyes on his back and turned to see Delphine shaking her head at him. You know, I would have let you stay another night. He waved a hand dismissively. I sleep better outside. So I see, Delphine said, glancing at the sky. Where do you think you'll go? Bracknell's. Going to try to get him out again. Good, she said. He should like that. But Bracknell wasn't in his treehouse when the hunter arrived. The ladder was down and the door was locked like he was out. Shrugging, the hunter set about the north slopes. He repeated his process, found a lookout spot, took precautions to cover his scent, and kept eyes, ears, and nose open at all times. Moose. He was looking for moose. Bracknell had confirmed that they sometimes make their way up from the plains. Something smaller would do as well, a squirrel or marten. Half an hour later, he was creeping low along a rocky ridge, taking care to only step on the sparse patches of lichens so his boots didn't click and clop against the bare stone. An arrow was already notched in his bow. He had yet to spot his quarry, but subtle air compressions, less than a sound, had tipped him off to the breathing of something. He had just about decided that he'd been chasing ghosts when he heard something loud and clear. You're dead, boy. He spun on the spot, bringing his bow to bear, but he saw nothing. The voice had seemingly just come out of the bushes, out of the stone. It took him a good thirty seconds before he noticed one of the bushes had boots and an arrow coming out of it. As his eyes adjusted, the shrub began grinning. Bracknell sat, seemingly molded into a bush, his bow strapped to his feet, Leaning back against the drawn string, an arrow notched and pointed several feet to the hunter's left. The young hunter let down his arrow and swore, By the mountain, how long have you been like that? All morning. I was about to cut my losses when I heard you knocking at my door. Figured you'd come through. Bracknell bent his knees with a few loud pops, effectively letting down his arrow as well. As he stood up, the hunter saw that he had strapped large and leafy branches to himself. How do you even stay like that for so long? The, the elder hunter cracked his back and held up a thick cloth. This stops my fingers from falling asleep. Once you lean against the bow, it's just like sitting in a chair. You are crazy. All morning, just sitting here? When you already have food? It's not for me. I'm looking to sell a moose. Get me one of those nice, strong footlockers for my gear. Where would you get that? Whiterun, Bracknell said simply. But that's besides the point. Come on, I've got plans for you today. Plans for me? Yes, so put that arrow away and come with me. You seem very... energetic? Maybe that's because I woke up of my own accord today. Funny how that works. Okay, point taken. Let's go. We've got a lot of ground to cover today. We're heading out to the lake. Lake Ilanalta? What do you need my help with? Simple, said Bracknell. 
you are going to be bait. Slaughter fish bow hunting. And Bracknell thought the wolves were a bad idea. The river rushed past only a stone's throw from the road as the two trekked slowly south to the lake. Do you know the name of this river? asked Bracknell. The hunter cocked his head. I can't say I do. It's always been the river to me. It's called the White River. It runs through Whiterun Hold, then turns east all the way to Windhelm. It's the longest river in all Skyrim. I see. I don't ever really plan on going to Windhelm. Well, no one ever plans on going to Windhelm. Just ask the Dark Elves. It would probably be suicide if I ever did go there. The Legion already thinks I'm a Stormcloak, and the Stormcloaks would only see an Imperial. What did you do to anger the Legion? I refused to join. Really? The Legion's gotten that paranoid? Were things different when you served? Bracknell shot a dark look at the hunter. Your bow, the hunter explained. It's of similar make to the Legionnaires in Helgen. Bracknell pursed his lips and gave a curt nod. The Legion likes its plans. If they're jumpy, it means they've been getting surprised recently. Their spies must be in shambles. Spies? Information network. Of course, all the real spies are those sanctioned by the Thalmor. What did you do in the Legion? What's this? Bracknell suddenly veered off toward the river, not seeming to register the hunter's last question. He gestured with a gnarled hand to a few patches of mountain flower, their tops conspicuously missing, and their stems showing signs of browsing. Between the nibbled shoots, several familiar impressions dotted the soft riverbank. Deer, said the hunter flatly. About four. Six, actually. And look where the tracks have come from. The hunter crouched and his brow furrowed. The tracks seemed to lead back to the river. There were several small divots and globular impressions in the mud around the tracks, and just for a moment the hunter could see clear as day as the large animals splashed their way out of the water, dripping as they went. Something wasn't right. The hunter squinted across the river at the untouched flower buds of the opposite bank, and his mental image of the animals became more distressed, more frantic. The animals were fleeing something, something that didn't seem to follow them across the river. The animals were fleeing something something that didn't seem to follow them across the river. The hunter looked back to Bracknell, who only nodded. They were seeing the same thing. You said there's a pack on that mountain, right? I expect they took down a little one, and the rest ran. Wrong time of year, young blood. It's rutting season. The wolves wouldn't attack a group of full-grown angry bucks. A pack can take down just about anything at once if they work together. It's just a matter of cost. Not my pack. They're opportunists, swift, lean little devils, built like bowstrings. Spend half the year in the foothills on the west side, sneaking around giants. Perhaps a bear, then? Do you honestly think that? I... no. Then don't suggest it. So, it's either coincidence or something unnatural. 
There are no coincidences. The hunter stood up and fixed the old man with a meaningful stare. Then it may be best to leave it alone. Right, said Bracknell. Let's stick to this side of the river. After a long day's hike and a long night sleeping on the shores of Lake Illinalta, the hunter stood in the dawn gloom, his knees submerged in frigid water. As the midnight mists lifted, they kissed his bare chest. Bracknell had suggested that he take his bottoms off for maneuverability, but the hunter had rejected the idea on the grounds that never in a million years would he expose his privates to the jaws of a slaughterfish. You need to move around more called Bracknell from up on the rock where he sat bow in hand. If you can't bring them into the shallows, the arrows won't even be able to touch them. Are you sure about this? Of course. In fact, I'd bet your nuts on it. You know, it just occurred to me that the fishermen around here might take umbrage to us moving in on their spot. Oh, I'm sure they won't mind. We aren't really fishing anyway. We're just, we just happen to be hunting fish. You know, this wouldn't have been necessary if we caught that squirrel. A little blood in the water, and that would have done the trick. Hey, you were the one to miss the shot. Only because you sneezed, I had him lined up. Who's to say who that was? Hey, it was probably a bear. Well, that bear is an idiot. I'm not saying the bear cares, but I am saying that if you were to say that to the bear's face, he would rip your head off. Or at least smack you. The bear is too slow to catch a ferret. Luckily, it's only dealing with a fat, overfed skeever. Overfed? I haven't eaten in- ah! The hunter suddenly leapt, knees exploding out of the lake, frothing and turning the water till it was white. Something just touched me! Probably just the weeds. But keep jumping like that, that's good. This is stupid, Bracknell! I can't see anything from down here. Don't worry, I'm looking out for you. That's what worries me. Hey, I'm just as hungry as you. Look, if you insist on using blood, why don't you cut your own hand? Ah, I've got enough scars. Women like scars. Here, I'll toss you a knife. <sighs> okay, fine. Let me just- WHOA! The flustered hunter dove aside as he spotted the glint of a bear blade being hurled at him. What is wrong with you? He shouted as he fought to his feet, now thoroughly drenched. Toss it in its sheath! You maniac! And get the sheath all moldy? Come on now, you know what water does to leather. Shaking his head, the hunter retrieved the knife. A two-sided iron blade, notched and blunted on one side from repeated use. Bracknell had been right. He really did have plenty of these. As he softly ran the sharp edge along the skin of his left palm, he glanced at the elder hunter, whose face wore a jagged smile. You have healing potions, right? Alchemist? Bracknell tossed his head back in mild exasperation. This milk drinker. Yes, boy! I have the ingredients to make one. The hunter rolled, the hunter rolled his eyes, held his breath, gripped the blade, and swiftly dragged it along the callous skin of his palm. He hissed through gritted teeth as dark red blood immediately began to run through his clenched fingers and drip into the lake. I'll keep one ear out, okay? Understood, said Bracknell, 
without a hint of wit. And with that, the hunter dived out into the shallows, swimming lazily in a broad circle, leaving a faint crimson trail in his wake. He swam with his head turned to the side, listening both for the warning from Bracknell and the telltale thrashing of a slaughterfish approaching from the depths. Even a fit young man like him could be dragged to the bottom by a fully grown slaughterfish. After his third lap, he hastily returned to the shallows. Anything? He panted as he stood up, loudly shedding water as he did. Maybe, said Bracknell, squinting into the murk from on high. Something stirs by those rocks to the right. The hunter looked, and indeed there was the faintest of wakes in the water. It was drifting slowly but deliberately towards the spot he'd just been swimming. The two hunters instinctively stood still, watching it go. The hunter's wet brow furrowed as a thought occurred to him. He glanced down to see that indeed his hand was still dripping blood into the water. Suddenly, with the whip of a tail, the steady wake turned into a violent, splashing apparition, and with the speed of a sprinting wolf bore in on the hapless hunter. Back out! Back out! shouted Bracknell as he drew back his arrow. The hunter stumbled backwards, nearly falling as he turned away from the oncoming demon and ran as fast as he could out of the water, his legs dragging with agonizing lethargy through the shallows. Every step brought him closer to safety. Every step was a little bit easier, a little bit faster than the last. The thrashing was now like a roar in his ears, closer and closer. He could feel the razor-sharp teeth preparing to take a bite out of his calf. Then suddenly a dull swat noise sounded behind him, and he skipped safely onto the shore, his knees shooting up to his chest with their new freedom. He turned to see a slaughterfish. It was as long as his arm its scales a shimmering silver blue along its muscular form. Broad for a fish, with long, arm-like fins. Its yellow eye seemed to glare at him as its long, wicked jaws snapped ineffectually. An arrow was buried in its side. Quick, grab it! called Bracknell as he began to scramble down the rock. No sooner had the elder hunter said this when the slaughterfish began to turn working its limb-like fins into the mud of the shallows. It turned away from the shore and was about to make a dash for the deep when it was lifted, ripped out of the water by the hunter. He had one hand on its tail and one on the shaft of the arrow in its side. The fish began to violently beat its thick tail, trying to swim through the air. It was so strong that the shaft of the arrow immediately snapped clean, and the hunter had to put both hands on the fish's tail as he tried to haul it ashore. The twisting convulsions sent up through the hunter's arms by the fighting fish were so powerful the hunter thought his shoulders would be ripped from their sockets. The rocks! shouted Bracknell. As soon as he was out of the water he began to spin faster and faster, swinging the flailing fish as he maneuvered himself over to a large rock, and with all the force he could muster he dashed the fish's head across its hard surface. The hunter dropped the slaughterfish and the aquatic beast fell to the ground still wriggling and slowly working its jaw numbly. It wasn't until Bracknell brought his boot down directly on its head that it finally fell still. The old man raised his arms, giving a triumphant whoop, and looked expectantly at the hunter, who was panting, hunched over a rock. His arms felt like they had been boned. The look he gave Bracknell must have been something, because the elder hunter blanched and scratched his head sheepishly. Ah, yes. Sorry about that. I missed the spine. But hey, it was, it, it was moving fast and we still got it in the end, right? 
The hunter just shook his head, and with some effort pushed himself off the rock and stumbled towards the lake. Where are you going? asked Bracknell. I'm going to wash these scales off my hands. Are you sure? We've, we've still got to clean the fish. No, said the hunter, turning to the Nord. You still have to clean the fish. The hunter took satisfaction in the old man's silence and proceeded to the water's edge. He looked at his bloody, scale-covered hands and flexed them. The joints of his fingers were already sore and the sun had yet to properly rise. As he knelt before the lapping lip of the lake, he wondered how many more times he would help the old man get out. Not a second after his hands touched the water, a cacophony of splashes erupted from the water not twenty feet away. The hunter looked up to see a gaping pair of razor-lined jaws rushing towards him. With a yelp, he fell back, kicking away from the water. Just then an arrow whipped by his ear into the second slaughterfish's mouth and through its brain. As the dead fish began to bob harmlessly on the surface, and Bracknell cheered, stiff arms raised, the hunter lay back and laughed. He laughed long and hard. His voice echoed off the trees and boulders and woke a jay in a nearby grove. He laughed because his trusty old camp seemed so far away. He laughed because, in this moment, he didn't want to go back to Helgen. He laughed because it had been an amazing shot, and he'd just about wet himself, and he knew he would never, ever hear the end of any of it. Let it be known that from this day forward, slaughterfish was the hunter's favorite dish. Bracknell had brought some nice salt from Riverwood, and it went perfectly with the rich red meat. They had scaled the fishes together, as Bracknell had insisted on keeping the scales for alchemical purposes, cleaned out the innards, filleted the fish into steaks, and smoked them over a fire, letting the fat melt off the muscle and drip sizzling into the flames. Beneath the bright blue sky, the hunter pulled off a sizable chunk of fish and placed the well-seasoned, juicy morsel in his mouth. It was truly the stuff of kings. He sucked the flavor from his fingertips after every bite. He sat, still topless, skin browning slowly in the dappled light of their mostly shaded camp. He flexed his shoulders, feeling a breeze tickle the freshly healed wounds on his back. Bracknell eyed the motion from his spot across the now steadily dying fire. Do they still hurt? Hmm? Well, you were shot. Oh, yeah, a bit. It comes and goes. But, but truth be told, this one is probably the worst. The hunter waved his now bandaged left hand for emphasis. I saw that divot on your back. That will do you some good. You'll get a good scar from that one. Oh, right, because women love scars, the hunter jokingly recalled. They do, said Bracknell defensively. At least Nord women do. Oh, okay, so it's just Nord women, said the hunter through a mouthful of fish. Yep, you want to know how much Nord women love scars? And the hunter smiled at the obvious setup. How much do Nord women love scars? Nord women love scars so much that if you have a good scar, you don't even need a beard. The hunter paused mid-chew to consider the statement. That's actually pretty impressive. <laughs> yes, it is, laughed Bracknell. You ever get yourself one of those strong Nord women? Several in my day. 
Really? Oh yeah. I was the most popular young man in my town growing up. Not that there was much competition. There was Hyrun and Irolod. Then once I joined the Legion, there was Frisell. And when I was stationed at Rorikstead, there was, uh... Sorari. His eyes seemed to grow distant. Did you ever marry? Hmm, once. Where is she? Bracknell sighed. Not around, but that's my business, isn't it? Sorry, said the hunter, returning to his fish. Bracknell eyed the boy while he chewed and fiddled with a notably perforated slaughterfish skull. Just then, he froze, peering at something behind the hunter. Stranger, don't move, he hissed suddenly in a low whisper. The hunter stiffened. Now turn around slowly. The hunter did so. Fourth tree from the lake. Lower left side, between the rock and the snowberry bush. The hunter looked to the spot and saw through the leaves a flash of red fur. A fox. Yes, indeed. Bracknell took out his knife and cut out a chunk of smoked fish about the size of his fist. Then, crouching low, he tossed it over on the ground near the snowberry bush. There was nothing for a moment. Then, its lean muscles rippling under red fur, the fox crept out of the bush. Its long snout low to the ground, white chin brushing over the grass. It, it came slowly, seeming to mind its every step as it went. Its white tip tail was low and bushy. It could have just taken the chunk of meat, but it seemed to insist on attacking it. In a cloud of dust, it disappeared back into the thicket. I like foxes, Bracknell said absentmindedly. You know, now that you've done that, more are going to come. Bah, muttered Bracknell. What good's a bounty if not shared? Anyway, how about you? Hmm? Well, if we're going to be swapping stories like the young stallions we are... I think it's time we hear about your adventures with a fairer kind. Oh, well, maybe a bit when I was young, but since then, I can't say I've been so lucky. I've mostly been... surviving, I guess. Surviving and living aren't the same thing. Surviving's for people with nothing left. You're young. You still have much you can do for yourself. For the world, if you choose. You know you're the second person to tell me that in two days about the whole living and surviving. It's the truth. But what if I choose to live a simple life? Stay out of the world's way? Is that such a waste? Not at all. Not if you're happy doing it. But that's the question. Are you happy? Because you strike me as someone who's never considered to even ask that question. I'm just trying to see tomorrow. We all are. But sometimes the best things in life require a little risk. In that moment, as the hunter stared into the embers of the low fire, their glow nearly imperceptible in the day's light, his thoughts drifted to the southwestern edge of the lake, to a new mill, likely finished by now. Would you mind heading back to Riverwood alone tonight? Who's to say when I'll go back? I might stick around, do some scrimshaw with these bones. You know what I meant. Relax, boy, laughed Bracknell. Yes, I can take care of myself just fine. Probably better than you. Good, because I think I'm going to go for a walk around the south side of the lake. There wouldn't happen to be a strong Nord woman on the other side of that lake, would there? Yes, smiled the hunter. 
but that's my business, isn't it? Bracknell gave a good-natured scoff. Don't be impertinent, boy. It's obviously the lake's business. The hunter helped Bracknell set the remaining fish meat up to dry before setting off south around the lake. He stayed near the water's edge, as he knew the road veered southeast before forking back west. A mill, he knew, would be on the water. He just needed to find the spot where Lake Illinalta began to flow into Falkreath Basin, the valley where the Holt's capital resided. His bow was hung with care across his shoulders, and his sleeping pack was tucked into the straps of his quiver. The trees near the water's edge were for the most part young and thin compared to those of the deep forest. This made it easy for him to peek between their trunks and see many things. Jays and sparrows darted about the canopy. At one point, a flash of red betrayed the presence of a cardinal. A bizarre burial mound comprised of stacked rocks stood derelict in a clearing. Human bones looked to be scattered around its base. The hunter gave the mound a wide berth, keeping an ear out for any signs of an ambush. There was risk, and then there was stupidity. Far out in the lake, perched on a lonely island, he thought he could see a standing stone, surrounded by archaic architecture. Not Nord, not Imperial, something far older. As the lake edge began to veer northwest, the hunter began to hear the familiar sound of rushing water. And as he climbed up a small rocky outcropping, he began to detect the faint grinding and turning of gears. From atop the stone hill, the hunter gazed down on a long-anticipated site. A mill built right on the headwaters of the southbound river. A well-made house of stone and straw stood on the other side of a simple footbridge, and to the left, the main road to the reach wound past like a scaly stone snake. But of all that he beheld in that moment, by far the most striking was a petite Nord woman with dirty blonde hair and clothing made of a worn hide pick up a tree trunk easily ten times her size and hoist it into a trough to be sent towards the mill's main saw blade. Nord women really were something. He expected a log that size would have crushed him. She seemed to feel his gaze as she straightened up. Turning, she stiffened at the sight of him, the stranger standing on the rocks. She met his eyes with her own. Even in the afternoon light, her eyes shone like candles in a dark room. She had him transfixed. She smiled then, and his heart jumped into his throat. Hello, stranger, she called. What brings you to Half Moon Mill? Did she remember him, or was that just a turn of phrase? It wasn't very convenient to go by stranger, the hunter lamented. But it was still better than his real name. Uh, hello, he tested. I, I'm here for what? He tried to take a step towards her, but apparently forgot where he stood. His ankle twisted on the steep surface, and he was sent tumbling down the hill. He rolled as best he could, trying not to break his bow, but the side of his face scraped hard against the granite stone. Head over heels he fell, striking the relatively soft riverbank with a dull thud, crumpling into a heap as he did. There he lay, face in the dirt, left arm splayed awkwardly out to the side, one leg arching over his head, the other still towing the rocky slope. He should have been embarrassed, but his face hurt too much for him to really worry about it. He'd been laughed at before. 
He could handle it. But rather than laughter, all he heard was the concerned voice of Hurt. Gods, are you okay? She gasped as she rushed to his side. Fine, fine, he assured her, rolling over, trying to stand. He rushed the action, however, and stumbled, only serving to worry her more. No, no, Hurt placed her hands on his shoulders and leaned him, sitting against the slope he'd just fallen down. Sit here. I'll... She paused, and her grip on his shoulders seemed to tighten as she spotted the scrape on his face. I'll get a cloth to clean you up, she finished finally and took off, running towards the house. His flesh was a light where her hands had touched him. He wondered how many of his first impressions would require medical attention. He wondered how many of his first impressions would require medical attention. Hurt soon emerged from the house with pale rag in hand. She soaked it in the river before rushing back to the hunter's side. She moved with a precise grace that reminded the hunter of a stalking saber cat he'd once seen hunting on a far-off ridge. Her face, while pretty, was marred by two scars, signs of a life earned, not given. Everything about the woman exuded a kind of general proficiency. Her dirty blonde hair fell around high, elegant cheekbones as she knelt down, pressing the rag against his face. Thanks, he said sheepishly, and moved to hold the cloth himself. During the exchange, he felt the chill of the river on her fingers. No problem, she assured. So where do you come from? The hunter's eyes were puzzled behind the rag. Helgen. Oh, are you from the garrison? No, I... Don't you remember? You said my name. No, I didn't. Stranger. Oh, that's your name? It's a common word. Right, said the hunter, hating how disappointed he sounded. I suppose it was dumb of me to assume. He brought the rag away from his cheek. It was stained brown and red. The cheek wasn't bleeding openly, just scraped. It would likely bruise soon. Well, sorry I don't remember you, said Hurt as she took the rag from the bedraggled man. She knelt down next to him, and his eyes caught a modest glimpse of her bound bosom. Why come out here to find me, if you aren't with the garrison? Are you looking to buy? No, he said, trying to avert his eyes. I just... Oh, she said suddenly and brought her hand to his ear. It looks like you nicked your ear, too. She drew her thumb across the small wound on his earlobe, then brought her bloody digit to her mouth and sucked the blood off. Something about the gesture, the chill her touch sent through him, the small smile which played on her lips as they wrapped snugly around her thumb, removed any reservations he still bore. I came because I wanted to see you again, he heard himself saying. When we met before, in Helgen, you were so amazing, I just couldn't get you out of my head. I normally don't stray far from my home, but things have been hectic around there lately. That's very sweet, she laughed. Her teeth were as fair as her skin. I'm glad I left such an impression. How could you not? Oh, please. Hurt giggled. I kept thinking about coming out here and helping you build this place, but I was sort of tied to my hunting grounds. Hunting grounds, eh? She was close to him now. He couldn't remember when that had happened. What are you hunting? Elk, deer, anything else I can shoot. Feeding the towns, hmm? It's hardly that noble, 
His eyes dropped to his lap. I, I hunt for myself. Mostly I try to stay out of people's way. Oh, I'm sure you're missed, she cooed. He turned then to see her crouching, smiling at him from behind clasped hands. In them, the dirty rag had been crumpled into a ball under her nose. What do you hunt? The hunter asked, looking at her perched position. I can tell you do it by the way you move. Oh, I don't hunt, but sometimes I go trapping. What do you trap then? Rabbits, squirrels, the occasional ferret. That feeds you? I have food delivered from the city, and there's always the traveling merchants. Other than that, I'm alone out here. Really? Really. Well, we can't have that, can we? Perhaps not, she breathed. She was even closer now. Actually, I was going to call it a day here soon. You could stay for dinner, and maybe tomorrow I could put you to work. His head was swimming. Her breath was on his neck. I think I'd like that. He felt the words escape as his lips spread into a lazy grin. She was leaning right into him, her cool touch invading his furs as her fingers slid under his collar. Her scent was in his nose. The smell of pine and freshly damp foliage. What had he done or said to deserve this beautiful miracle of a woman? She hadn't even seen his scars, and she was just about knocking him over. He placed his left hand on the rock to steady himself, but it slipped on something warm and wet. Suddenly he was aware of a pain shooting up his arm. He turned to look and saw that the bandage wrapped around the knife wound on his palm was bright red and soaked through. The cut must have reopened in his tumble, and this was no simple scrape. This was a bleeder. He left a bright red stain on the rocky wall as he quickly shot to his feet, hurt staring wide-eyed at his gushing hand. S-sorry, he stammered. I-I-I-I've got, I've got to go clean this. And with that, he sprinted towards the lake. When he reached the lapping water's edge, he took a deep breath. The air was fresh and brisk. It struck him as odd that he should notice that now. It wasn't as if he'd been in a cave. His blood was dripping on the ground now. Okay, he thought. Focus. He needed to wash the rag first so that he could treat the wound. With increasingly nimble hands, he unwrapped the bandage and was just about to dunk it in the water when a horrid yet familiar splashing sound assaulted his ears. He didn't look to see the thrashing monstrosity, he just immediately dove away from the water. He felt the bloody bandage be yanked from his grip with the strength of a wolf. He scrambled away and only turned back once well clear of the lake. There it was, its jaws chomping and shaking at the shredded cloth of the bandage, obviously displeased with its catch. A slaughterfish. Why? The hunter almost shouted. Why are you waiting here? There isn't even any blood in the water. Oh, but there was. Now that he looked, the hunter saw that the whole lip of the lake was tinged an opaque red. Faded, yes, but present. As the low afternoon sun penetrated the lake, the hunter saw that the water had the sickly orange tint of gore. He stood and began to pace along the bank, while the slaughterfish watched him with its perpetually furious eyes. He scoured the water's edge, looking for some hint as to the source of the anomaly. 
It wasn't long before he found the small crimson river that wound from the lake up the bank, over the sediment, and under the walls of a small, unassuming shack. He looked around. This shack stood at the far corner of Hertz property. He hadn't noticed it from up on the rock, but now it seemed outright conspicuous. He circled around and quickly found a door. It was unlocked. He stepped inside. He was immediately greeted by the smell of blood, fat, and gore. Racks and racks of raw meat, tables with blood-stained cleavers, huge chunks of venison, pheasants and rabbits on hooks. There was even the more gamey meat of a carnivore, perhaps some kind of dog. Bones hung from the walls and ceiling, their pale surfaces bearing the telltale tick marks of having been scraped clean. This was some kind of game house, a smokehouse without the smoke. It should have been rotten, but the stench was bizarrely subdued. Had this all been bought or delivered? What was preserving it? Why wasn't it cured? The hunter took one more step, then stopped, eyes shut tight. He knew what he had seen, and that he must never see it again. Under the far chopping table lay what had appeared to be a simple pile of bones. They had caught his eye because they were not picked clean. They still bore blotchy patches of sinew, as if they'd been sloppily torn at, not cleaned. That was when he saw the eye, staring at him, wide and blue. A human eye, inside a mutilated top half of a human skull. The deep shadows of the shack rolled back like a curtain as his eyes adjusted, revealing to him the true horror of the scene. The skull lay next to a pile of broken ribs and vertebra, pale cartilage still binding some of the disassembled spine. On the table, two blood-filled bowls held what appeared to be a man's heart and liver. He knew they were a man's, because suspended over a bucket was the man's severed lower half. Hung from the ceiling by its rigid and twisted ankles, its pale, its, its pale, drained genitals dangling over the cavity that would have once housed the man's innards. The bucket below the lifeless legs was overflowing with blood. The blood was still steadily dripping from the cadaver, and the bucket was slowly spilling its excess cargo onto the table, over the edge, onto the dirt ground, and out to the lake. He stood there now, eyes clenched shut, hardly daring to breathe. Her skin had been cold. She had been shifting trees and yet had not shed a drop of sweat. Had she been sniffing that bloody cloth? Had she tasted him? There were other signs. He must remember. Why was he so slow? He fought against the image of that blue Nordic eye staring out from that grisly skull. That damned eye. Eyes. What color were her eyes? Her beautiful eyes. They shone like candles in a dark room. Yes, but what color? He couldn't say. Those eyes that had captured him. Those eyes that he had spent months dreaming about, and yet he couldn't recall their color. Did you get lost, stranger? Her voice was so sweet. So dreadfully enticing. 
He turned to her, rigid, every muscle taut, and looked into her eyes. They shone like candles in a dark room, because they were dark. Blood black beneath her pale lids, and deep within some burning glow festered, churning like a cauldron at the heart of a mountain, like the blood moon on a starless night. His heart pounded against his ears as she smiled, and he saw her fangs. Are you ready for dinner? And on that bombshell, I leave you with the end of chapter two of the Skyrim audio adventure. I was told by somebody who listened to this that I should probably start a Patreon to see if I can gain support for it, and I'm considering the idea, but I would like your input on that. Would any of you like to help me continue this project and continue making these kinds of stories? If so, let me know. There weren't really any notable mods to highlight in this particular episode, at least none that I care to mention. And so, until next time, thanks for listening.